Financial Thing Studios is the peer-to-peer lending essentials podcast. Hi, welcome to the Financial Thing Investing Essentials podcast. And we have a special guest as always for you today. It is Stuart Law from Assets Capital. He is the head honcho over there and got a good lineup of questions for him to address some of the uh, new changes the assets has been going through, some of the new products and his views on the peer-to-peer lending sector in general. And it's been about a year since I had Stuart on the last time. So I'm looking forward to having a great discussion with him. How are you doing today, Stuart? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thanks, Lawrence. Good afternoon. Good. Good afternoon to you. So since we conducted the last podcast, you've had a, a couple of changes at Assets Capital, introducing the property secured account, which is a new product. Can you explain uh, you know, why the account was introduced and also a little bit about how it works and what's inside of it? Uh, certainly, yes. Yeah. We, uh, we've had a small range of accounts which have specific investment mandates in the past, and uh, the property secured account was an account that we we sensed quite a lot of demand for. People wanted an automatic way of investing into loans that had a pretty conservative cap on the loan to value and where all other forms of security were ignored apart from property security. And uh, although you can do that manually, it's quite time consuming. And we, we felt that we wanted to give people that, uh, that direct access so they can look at a mandate they like we had a lot of feedback from people saying that's what they were looking for. And so we created a, an automatic mandate that if that is what they were looking for, it would invest for them automatically. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And um, also one of the other things that I've noticed too, and this is generally happening in, in most of the peer-to-peer companies, but the interest rates of assets have, have fallen a little bit since the last time that we spoke. Um, has this affected the, the lender demand that you've seen at all for assets? No, no, we're we're at peak levels of uh, cash inflows into the business, so we're we're not seeing it um, affecting anything. But I think your comments might relate to a longer time frame. We've had a pretty flat eight percent or so return to lenders, uh, eight and a bit, so average lender rate and we haven't seen a compression of that rate for quite some time. We of course do get the odd exceptional loan where there's a a much borrower rate that is appropriate but I think a a good indication is the data over on the AltFi data uh, website that shows us as having a pretty consistent net of losses return actually around the 8% mark or so per annum. And so I think perhaps what people are seeing is that we're not doing so many 12% type loans anymore, that we're finding them harder to locate when they've got very good credit characteristics. Okay. Occasionally we're finding some bridges of that type, of course, but the bridging market has become more competitive. And uh, if we find a, a lower risk, lower LTV bridging loan, there's certainly more competition nowadays for rates that are tighter than paying a lender 12%. Um, but we've been quite categoric in our credit appetite. What what we have not done is we haven't moved our credit appetite. So pricing has tightened up 
but we haven't become more lax with credit. Quite the opposite, actually. We've um, been expanding our credit team over the last six months or so substantially, and we've got about 250 man years of experience now in that team. Uh, that's that's probably doubled over the last uh, few months, mm-hmm. and we're we're taking an even more pragmatic, deeply experienced, common sense approach to lending. And at the same time, we've honed it right down to purely property-backed security. Uh, what that's doing is making sure that we're seeing the wood for the trees. We're not just taking something that looks sensible at first sight based on, for example, the property security, but also looking at the other risks around the transaction that tend to only be visible based upon experience, for example, or common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what it's overall doing is it's meaning that we we are winning a lot of business because we are recognizing a good transaction through the noise that perhaps is what is stopping it being financed in the high street. And equally, we're very quick to explain to a borrower or their introducer if there is a transaction that we don't like the look of. And that, that pragmatic approach to lending, very common sense based, um, there's certainly a degree of the book Blink for those who've read it. Um, If you have exceptional experience, very deep experience in a subject matter, your instinct tends to tell you straight away what the right answer might be. And we tend to use that on the downside. So if we spot something that experience tells us probably isn't a good idea, we would reject it relatively quickly. But if instinct is saying this is probably okay, we then invest the time to cover all bases reviewing that that project. So we're not instinctually or through any kind of computer algorithm approving loans at all, but we are using instinct based on deep experience to allow a loan into our four walls and start using up our valuable team's time to do a proper thorough job of investigating it. And I think, I think um, what that's done is it's meant that we've stayed just outside the territory of banks Mm -hmm. and we're seeing a very healthy flow of loan applications because we're taking a real world sensible view on transactions Um, and that 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 view is just getting better and it most certainly is not taking our interest rates down so for example if i thought our interest rates to lenders would move below the eight percent plus that they're currently seeing on average down to say six percent, I'd be saying so now, and that that absolutely is not what we're doing. Okay. Um, that all my data just to cover that off. Um, I think the latest month's data is um, coming out shortly, and net of losses we've produced pretty consistent, getting on for about eight percent return per annum. I think the current stats on that page show ten, but um, it was caused by an aberration in uh, some particularly good. Uh, recoveries data and so on but uh, I think we're about to revert back to our normal long-term figure of um, around 8% or so which is market leading it's the highest in the table okay Um, one thing I've noticed as as a personal investor is uh, before I used to do a lot with the manual lending account and once I've noticed that the rates of of the manual lending are somewhat lower now Um, just because of me personally liking to do the due diligence on some of the businesses uh, that you offer for loans. I've started to gravitate a little bit more to the uh, GBBA account. For anybody that's listening that doesn't know what I'm talking about, Assets has a 
automated account that is called the Great British Business Account. And it's for those people that don't want to have to pick out their loans manually. You just put money in there and, and the loans are picked out automatically and, and uh, payments are reinvested and interest payments are reinvested. Um, there's become less of a disparity between the manual lending interest rates and the, and the GBBA account. Um, have, have you noticed that more money is going into the GBBA because of that? Or has that changed much? Yes. Uh, just before Christmas, we launched the second series of the GBBA account, the Great British Business Account. Um, and we dropped the rate from 7% to 6.25 just to make sure we were fully absorbing the flow of loans that suited that mandate apart from the rate and to ensure also that we were properly funding the provision fund with the difference in rates. We were finding that the original GBBA1 had reached the end of its natural life as we'd finally stabilised in terms of rates in the market. Mm -hmm. We found it wasn't accepting enough loans and we had to move on and slightly lower the rate. And yes, it's been very, very popular. We've 10% of our assets under under management, for want of a better word, under servicing in the loan book, are now within that account, within just three months of setting it up. It's also proved very popular with the ISA investors, because 6.25% without any tax to pay is an incredibly healthy figure. Um, but it won't be the only way to achieve that sort of rate without the work that you're talking about manually investing in the manual lending account, um, we're approaching this in two different ways. We're firstly looking at whether we can extend the access accounts to have a wider range of terms. And some of the longer term accounts, should we introduce them, would have a rate not dissimilar to the uh, GBBA2 account. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, we're approaching it from the other direction. Um, one of the problems people have is how much time it takes to read credit reports on individual loans and to individually pick out those loans based on the type of security and the loan to value. So we will be introducing in the near future a number of more automated functions within the manual lending account, the MLA, to speed up the ability of people to invest in what they like. So if they want to immediately get some accessibility to loans that, for example, have better than 60% LTV, first charge security, that paid a rate of at least 8% mm -hmm. and so on, then that, that would be something that would be quite easy to set up and would automatically run in the background. And it will be moderately advanced. By the time we're finished with that towards the summer, people are going to be able to set diversification limits, maximum amounts per loan, and all sorts of other criteria. But compared to the current user interface in the manual lending account, where it's very much loan by loan and set your targets, we'll get, we're definitely going to introduce some quicker, simpler ways of managing that. So it's much more like a spreadsheet, I think, and uh, that, that should help people come at it from the manual lending account direction as well. So it's entirely possible the manual lending account becomes so flexible and quick to use and customizable to an investor's appetite that combined with the extension on the access accounts, perhaps perhaps they join the middle, mm -hmm. perhaps the other investment accounts are no longer required. If you yourself can set up something that emulates the Great British Business Account or the Property Secured Account. And that's the direction of travel, but we most definitely are 
uh, wedded to the idea of continuing giving people access to manual lending and picking their own loans. Any of that automation won't get rid of that. Okay, that, that's exciting news. I'm sure a lot of the manual lenders will be really happy to hear that flexibility being introduced. So, um, Now, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the collateral situation. I'm sure that um, you may be very limited to what you can say due to um, compliance issues and things like that, but it's sort of the talk right now. Um, for again, somebody who's listening may not know what I'm talking about. There's a peer-to-peer -peer company named Collateral that recently closed its doors. They were not um, operating under FCA permissions as they were supposed to be and were forced into administration. Um, Stuart, were we surprised by Collateral's closure when you heard about uh, it? I had to look up uh, who exactly they were at first. Mm -hmm. but, um, um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't following them, so wasn't particularly surprised about anything. But, you know, there's quite a range of companies in the marketplace, and I don't think peer-to-peer -peer is much different to any business marketplace. Some businesses succeed, some don't. And, um, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a number of platforms that have reached scale, profitability, cash flow, or have very deep pockets, if not. And... Um, and there are some that don't. And I think, uh, as I said, I had to look up what they were, who they were, when it happened. I don't think anybody's clear what happened in particular. I don't think the public-facing paperwork um, agrees with itself uh, from what I've seen. So I'm just waiting for closure and uh, let's see what the final outcome turns out to be. But sure. uh, I think sticking to scaled, deeply experienced platforms, ones that stick to their experience as well i think those are the sorts of themes i've read yeah so um, and by now i think people should be fully regulated you know there's plenty of time gone by so yeah sticking to fully regulated platforms is uh, a sensible thing obviously in a regulated marketplace yeah absolutely one, one of the things that has sort of been the chatter on the internet about this closure is um Peer-to-peer, -peer especially in the UK, has had a, a relatively good run. Uh, if you look over the last you know, three years, um, things have been relatively smooth. And what's starting to happen is, is the loan books of some companies are starting to mature. The default you know, rates have started to increase. And there's a little bit of consumer confidence uh, that seems to have been shaken, especially by this uh, collateral closure. Um, you had mentioned one of the things you know, to look at is a company's regulation status and that you definitely wouldn't want to be investing in a company uh, possibly that wasn't regulated. Um, what would you tell people that were a little bit nervous about this, this closure, you know, maybe to calm their nerves a little bit? Well, I think, I think two aspects you mentioned, isn't there? Nervousness about closure of platform. Of course, some businesses, small businesses, early businesses, underfunded businesses in any sector can fail. Absolutely happens. There's only so much space for a number of competitors in a marketplace in any case. And ones that have got to scale would tend to do better. Um, so from that point of view, I think I've said all, all I could really say, you know, don't be surprised if little businesses or startups have issues. Absolutely. And in some cases, larger companies can happen. Um, but I'm not sure because the other point you mentioned was defaults. And I think 
I've got a pretty clear message, I think, for from the default point of view. Defaults are the reality of lending. And particularly for alternative finance, I think it's very important to understand where alternative finance sits in in any market, but in, in the UK and the UK market. Where does it sit versus traditional banking, for example? And in pretty much all cases, Peer-to-peer is a part of alternative finance, and alternative finance is what absorbs the time, uh, the uh, the lending demands, sorry, for borrowers who come into that market <clears throat> and can't get through the banking system for whatever reason. But the deeper understanding, the deeper insight into that is the following. The UK banking sector as a whole only put 600 million of new cash into businesses, for example, last year, looking at the business sector, the SME business sector. They only put 600 million in last year. They took out about 750 million from the sector just in January. Now, okay, there was a bit of a bounce back in February and we're not finished on the quarter yet. But in the first month, they took out as much as they put in in total in the whole of 2017. The banking sector isn't supporting the UK SME. There are only a couple of years, which I think was 2015, 2016, when the amount of new money going into SMEs from banks was just about keeping up with inflation. Not quite, but sort of getting there. And all the other years before that, back into the crisis and now after that, they're putting in something that's way below inflation and actually going negative by the look of it this year. So what does that mean? It means the banks are providing an awful lot of capital for sure versus alternative finance, but they are providing what I would call foundation capital. Mm. They're what's keeping the lights on in the country, but they're not providing enough funding for growth. That's the place for alternative finance. Alternative finance is having to take a view on businesses where there's perhaps a slightly bigger default risk. But in our case, we're a secured lender. So if we were looking for the same type of default risk and loss risk that a bank was looking for, we'd have to compete on their rates. We'd have to be putting loans out at 3% or so. So what we're doing as a business is we're looking for businesses that make sense where there is an increased risk of default. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that hasn't ticked the box for banks. We charge more and in doing so, we can extend a loan but with our business being based on security, we're looking for the loss given a default to be, in an ideal case, predicted at zero at the point of lending. Mm. And we're taking good enough security, and bear in mind our loan book has an average loan to value of 59% currently. And even on a, a new month basis, we're typically taking new loans on the books at under 65% as a weighted average. Mm-hmm. So we're... We're in a place that's just outside banking that allows us to charge rates that are considerably higher, but we do it because we're taking a slightly higher default risk. And so that's the elephant in the room. We're going to get defaults. And back to your point, what should I say to those people who are perhaps uh, reaching a point where they're now experiencing some defaults on platforms? Well, that's the point. You won't be getting Um, significantly higher rates of return than a bank account if you're not taking some more risk. But in our business, that is a risk of default principally. We're looking to avoid the risk of a loss. 
when we're when we're at the point of blue. And so, yeah, absolutely. If somebody is worried about seeing a default, but is seeking these high returns, frankly, this this isn't the place. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be here, because professional teams such as the one you know we're nearly a hundred people now in assets capital. Professional teams like ourselves are seeking to minimize any losses that come out of a default, and we work hard at it. Sometimes we get criticized for the length of time it takes to follow through a, a recovery. But recovering uh, loans isn't, isn't quick and easy. You know, if you do a £20,000 unsecured business loan, you might send in the bailiffs, you might ask them to repay nicely, um, you might try and follow through on the personal guarantee. <clears throat> but it's it's a difficult and expensive job if there aren't really any assets there to recover anyway on that £20,000 loan. Right. And that, that process can go quite quickly. But if you've got a, um, a £2 million quality residential building and it's got a complicated situation around it, you really do want to be going through that process properly mm-hmm. uh, in order to achieve the maximum recovery. And quite often that does not involve just throwing the defaulted loan out to a receiver or an administrator and get our money back quick. You can often destroy a lot of value doing that. So we've got a lot of skill inside our business as well as using those people when relevant and when correct. And uh, I think our recovery stats to date uh, show that well. In fact, we did such good recoveries a while ago that the Altfire data, as I mentioned before, had a, a strange quirk to it. We, we over-recovered so much versus industry stats that um, our, our loss rate went positive. <laughs> oh, wow. We surprised on the upside. So we recovered more than Altfire data's industry statistics suggested we should have done. Mm-hmm. But it took a little time to do it properly. Um, so I would say that if somebody is unnerved by defaults and recoveries, the first question should be, are they happier in an automated account that deals with that and doesn't bother them with day-to-day noise? But if they're fundamentally bothered with it, perhaps peer-to-peer isn't for them and perhaps go back to a, a more simple savings account. That makes a lot of sense. Um, a lot of words, but frankly, that's where we are. Yeah. And if you, if you look at the charts of all of the main players and their returns long term, it's interesting that um, there isn't a peer-to-peer lender yet um, that has shown a negative return for any any year. Admittedly, only Zopra has been through a cycle to date, but a lot of people have stress tested their books, including us, and that's how we think. We're thinking, how do we avoid going negative in a cycle in any year where the losses would exceed the coupon earned? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the over one of the overriding objectives of the industry. Right. To see if they can manage their credit book to a position where that happens. And I think we all know, don't we, what what happened in the last cycle and what we'd expect to happen in any cycle if you're in the stock market or somewhere else, yeah, you'd look to see a pretty poor uh, capital loss, I think, on uh, on investments in other asset classes as well. So I think I think I think it's quite interesting to to watch how the how the sector evolves over time. And there's no promises or guarantees at all, but it's an intention, I think, of the industry to maintain that uh, positive return throughout cycles. And so far, Zopa's the only one that's got that track record. What has assets learned about effective default recovery uh, along the way? Um, 
we've learned we've learned investors like it to be done quickly. <laughs> we've learned to communicate why sometimes that's a bad idea. You know, we 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 could have put um, we had a default. It was a particular uh, a small student block, for example, as an example. And perhaps if we had put that straight out for recovery day one, we had offers in that would have recovered say 50p in the pound because there were problems with the um, student block at the time. But what we did instead was we took a very proactive approach and we, we built a plan with the administrators to, to rebuild the value and to put right what the borrower hadn't done, which created the problem. And so we took our time to do that. And it's quite unusual because it's, um, it's a property that's in administration at the moment, but producing strong regular cash flow for lenders because it's fully let now. Hmm. And it was only partly let when we took it over. So we've rebuilt value in that property. We've carried on paying a very healthy coupon and we've rebuilt the capital value as well. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just have to do the right thing. And um, you know, it's quite a popular phrase at the moment, patient capital. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the last crisis, the global financial crisis, a lot of the money was created, a lot of the losses, sorry, was created by people having to act generally in a panicked way and sell off things very quickly at a distressed price. I think you know, lenders have always got the choice what to do, but panic is, is a human trait. Humans tend to sell at the bottom, mm-hmm. buy at the top. And if things look bad, people tend to sell down at the bottom. And the bottom is, is the giveaway, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you can expect to do better. And the residential property marketplace dropped dramatically in the last cycle here in the UK because the only people selling were those who had to sell, those who panicked in some cases. But very quickly it recovered. Afterwards, once those four sellers disappeared out of the market, true value came back again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the words. I think people coming into the peer mar- peer-to-peer marketplace, particularly for secured loans, would be well advised to have a patient outlook and not to adopt the normal human trait of uh, panic and sell. Um, I think it was uh, Rothschild, wasn't it, that said, buy when there's blood on the streets. <laughs> yeah. uh, but human nature, unfortunately, is to sell when that happens. And um, at the very least, hold. Hold through the wobbles mm-hmm. because wobbles tend to dissipate. Let's talk a little bit about assets stability as a company. Um, very important that a company gets to profitability. I know Assets has been a profitable company for a while. Um, how, how is Assets now with, it, with regards to its profitability and, and what are you doing to increase that as a company? Yeah, we're, we haven't announced final figures for the financial year just finished end of March, but um, you're going to see revenues well north of 10 million. You're going to see profitability that's approximately doubled from uh, from last year's one million profit or so, and we're going to see um, healthy cash in the bank. Um, yeah, we're in, we're in a good place. The lending in the last quarter was an all-time high. We will come out at about uh, getting on for 62 million, possibly higher, of lending in that quarter, and uh, we have uh, possibly a, another record level of lending happening this month in April. So profitability is uh, is healthy. 
the business is healthy, there's a lot going on, and we're growing at a, a fair rate, but we're trying to manage that rate. Um, you know, the ISA, for example, brought in a, a lot of cash. So ISA investments now represent getting on for 10% of all of the cash on the platform within just three months. Wow. So that bodes well. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 30, 40, 50% in, uh, in a year's time. And that's uh, helpful for people because we're not, unlike a lot of um, industries within the ISA world, different asset classes, we're not planning to have a difference of rate or a difference of charging. So we, we pay all the ISA costs for people. So they're getting the same investments, the same types of investments, the same accounts, but with no extra cost and with no tax to pay. And we are seeing a, a significant number of transfers, but we haven't, we haven't published formal data on this so far. But one example would be that almost all, the vast majority of cash coming in onto the ISA accounts is new money on the platform. So the vast majority. Wow. So not people just moving money from the standard accounts. It's, uh, it's, it's ballpark around 75% of all cash seems to have come in so far from new money arriving on the platform. And the ISA was about 10% of our entire cash on the platform. That that's, uh, sounds like lender response to the ISA offering has been very good. H has that changed? You know, if you have this big influx of new cash through the uh, ISA, have the demand and supply levels stayed relatively balanced regarding bringing in enough loans uh, to uh, have yeah. enough money to match mm. to to that? Yeah, yeah, we don't uh, we don't have too much uh, lender capital. Um, we've we've grown, as I said, the team is now approaching 100 people. Um, when we filled the current vacancies, uh, and our field team, our relationship directors in offices from uh, north of Edinburgh down to the south coast now near Southampton, and across uh, with a couple of people over in Belfast as well. We, we're covering the whole country. We're covering more and more parts of the whole country. And that relationship director team is really kicking in with its origination. Mm -hmm. So, uh, no, no, the balance is there, and we're we're certainly open to a lot more cash. Okay. There's a lot of demand for our product, and we don't see any need or wish to adjust rates. We don't adjust rates based on based on weight of capital, at all. Okay. Instead, it just allows us to widen our marketing to borrowers. Okay. That's good to hear. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you do a little bit of a uh, how about a little one minute sales pitch as to why somebody would consider putting their ISA money into assets versus the other you know peer to peer or crowd lending options that are out there at the moment. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, first thing I'd say actually is it's pretty healthy as an idea to diversify across platforms. When you first read up on the ISA side you might assume you can't do that because you can only open one innovative finance ISA um, in a year. Mm -hmm. What people might miss the point on though is that you can do transfers of prior year ISA allowances. And I, I fully expect that the ISA industry for peer-to-peer -peer is going to work differently to the cash ISA industry and the equity ISA industry. So I would forecast that actually we're gonna see strong demand through the next year throughout the year 
for transfers from underperforming cash accounts where people give up on cash bank accounts and decide to start investing instead, but don't want the volatility of the stock market. I mean, here we are talking today and the American market looks like it's on the brink of another big step down again. It's, it's disconcerting to people. So I think, uh, I think transfers in ISAs is going to be the big, the big message, I think, over the rest of 2018. And so people can diversify cross-platform. But why should they pick us for their new money this year? Well, we offer to those people who want to invest in manual lending, one of the few choices to do that with a secured, scaled business with a proven track record that's third-party authorized, third-party, sorry, um, verified by Altfi data. There's only a handful of lenders who've dared, that probably is the right word to use, dared to open their um, lending book for third-party detailed review, in this case by Altfi data. Uh, there's only a handful of people, Funding Circle, Rick Setters, Oprah, ourselves, Market Invoice in the UK, who've done that. Others either can't because they haven't got the data or won't open that book for analysis. And our analysis shows that we have the highest net return, net of losses, but also the lowest risk ratio, which is your gross returns versus risk versus losses. And so, yeah, off data charts show us to be perhaps the best risk return ratio. That's the way they phrase it. And uh, we're yielding, getting on for about 8% per annum net of losses if you go into the manual lending marketplace. And even if you don't, we operate our access accounts, which are a really simple, massively diversified way of investing. So I think we offer a great choice of accounts. We offer market leading rates. We're very established. We're profitable. We've got plenty of cash. We've scaled. We're getting on for 100 people and uh, come back in a couple of years. We might have two or 300. So yeah, we're a proper business. We mean business. and. That's what we're here to do. Act as a good custodian for people's money and let us do a good job of lending it. And let us do a good job of recovering it when occasionally it goes wrong. That's why people should come to us. We're deeply experienced. We know what we're doing. Things happen and we like to think that we deal with them well and fairly. Stuart, so let's talk a, a little bit about the green energy account that used to be very, very popular um, with, with lenders. Now it's been put on pause. Can you can you give the listeners a quick explanation as to what is going on with that account and why that happened? Yeah, I think I think like any any government tax breaks, <clears throat> they tend to be used to incentivize uh, a type of activity, a response from the market. So in this case, we have the feed-in tariffs, the FIT tariffs, which were exceptionally generous when they started and gradually got scaled back. And I think what's what's happened here is the government has been reducing the subsidies and it's significantly reduced the entrepreneurial activity in the in the renewable sector and in particular the wind turbine sector, which we were focused on because the government's formed a view that their job here is done. You can see the point. Actually, if you look at news reports, you can see that we are getting new highs of amounts of energy produced by wind turbines, for example, um, this year, just gone. And we're seeing extremely high percentages of energy being created. Northern Ireland has, has a, uh, is way ahead of target for its renewable energy uh, 
electricity creation. Mm -hmm. So I think governments have generally formed the view that their job here is pretty much done. They've scaled back their subsidies. That's caused the entrepreneurial new money to pull out, perhaps. But larger investors, the big energy companies and so on, are, are still going at it full blast. So I think I think they've incentivized the market. It's got to scale. And we specialized in funding principally construction projects for entrepreneurial investors in the more heavily subsidized turbines. Mm -hmm. I think that market has now gone and we've just seen the loan flow dry up as a lot of other people have. Some people have chosen to go off into other areas. So areas that we're less comfortable with. So offshore wind turbines in some cases, other more untested areas of renewables. And our investors aren't keen on on dabbling in those newer areas and neither are we. So we've we've paused that account for the time being. We've got a few loans coming through uh, that are still there, still on the tariffs, but um, I, I, I would expect it's quite possible we need to wind up that account in the near future and um, and move on because okay. uh, we're not seeing the the loan flow that we'd need for our investors to be highly active in that market. Stuart, let me ask you a little bit about valuations on you had mentioned that a lot of the loans that assets is doing are property backed um one of the sticking points at the moment that i'm noticing for lenders is some of these valuations they're finding to be somewhat misleading not always particularly accurate um what is assets doing to ensure that the valuations received by the surveyors are actually accurate you know especially when it comes to default recovery um you know it's a bit of a problem if somebody says a property's worth a million on the valuation it turns out that they try you know they're struggling to get five hundred thousand for it on a liquidation mm -hmm. situation so what is assets doing to make sure that these valuations are realistic that they're being provided yeah there's there's lots of lots of specialist nuances to valuations and I could talk about different loan types and the types of risks within those loan types within the valuations for those loans and for the security on those loans and I can sit here all afternoon and do that uh, so I won't do that as widely what I'll do is I'll just cherry pick out a few examples of where you get problems so I've already talked about one where for example a student property if it's fully let and is achieving the proper rents will have a valuation which is based on a more commercial basis. What it will be doing is it won't perhaps in that case be valuing the bare bricks and mortar because that would come in at um, a much lower figure and would mean that the rental income against that was unreasonably high and wasn't a realistic figure. So instead you, you'd value that type of property and perhaps quite a bit of commercial property on on a valuation basis that takes into account much more the rental income flow so your risk is that the rental income isn't what you thought it would be so if somebody mismanages a building you could see it worth less if you had to step in one day at the wrong moment mm -hmm. than you thought it would be if it was fully tenanted so you never you can have a borrower mismanage a property that can devalue the property you can also have situations where properties are being refurbished. If you do a very bad refurbishment job and you do some de demolition works that go too far, what you're doing is you're destroying value 
before you rebuild the value with the refurbishment. And that's a latent risk within refurbishment type projects. So that's another example of a problem. You can also have problems where you have to really take great care over the type of valuer that you use, how large they are, their area of expertise, the level of PI cover they have, and whether or not they're anywhere near the property in question. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of things can raise flags. And yeah, you can get situations where somebody 100 miles away might value a one-off property. You might have a situation where that one-off property is so one-off that it's not really got enough comparables to form a view as to whether it's the right figure. So perhaps it's an area where houses are typically half a million. You've got a house here that's very special, one-off, will attract a limited number of buyers due to its design, and it's two million pounds in theory. Now, that's asking for trouble on several levels. You've got a one-off property that's right at the top of the market for its location. It's got design characteristics, perhaps, that limit the marketplace because it's a bit quirky. Mm -hmm. uh, or perhaps a very large property with only three bedrooms because that's what the guy who built it wanted. But it limits its market for that scale of house and so on. So you have to be very careful how you instruct the valuer, the purpose of the valuation. What are you actually trying to achieve? And I think perhaps without going into too much detail, but I think you can see what I'm saying. Is a platform trying to protect itself and its lenders or is it trying to justify a valuation which would allow it to extend the loan the borrower needs? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not good. And sometimes, of course, you can be let down by valuers. That absolutely does happen sometimes. But in many cases, you can, you can see that coming in most cases. You should be able to see that coming. And what we do is we we will sometimes second guess valuers on the downside, not on the upside. So if we get a valuation report of a million and we look at that particular property and we form a view, we cannot get comfortable with that figure based on, for example, comparables that we can find or the quality of the comparables that are listed in the valuation report, we might decline to accept that valuation as good support for the loan but we would never go the other way and say actually we think it's worth more than the value is saying and first pass if we don't think we're comfortable with what the value is telling us and we're thinking on the downside we'll then go back to that value and ask them to clarify provide further evidence and to get into more detail and if we still can't get comfortable we wouldn't go ahead Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, I've heard of some platforms accepting third-party valuations. If your valuation isn't, isn't addressed to the right party, like any contract, you can't rely on it. Right. Another really big issue, I, I, could, I could go on about lots of issues to do with valuations. You, know, you just need to keep your wits about you, construct the valuation on the right basis, ask for the right type of valuation because it matters, there are lots of methods of valuation. Um, and then you need to take a view on that and you need to pick the right valuer. Um, the method of valuation, most of our valuations are done on a modest time frame, typically about six months mm -hmm. for selling on the security. 
If you go in for 30 day, 90 day type valuations, that's a fire sale. It's going to produce a very, very aggressive discount in many cases to a property value. And we tend to ask typically for a VP 180, a vacant possession 180 day basis. But sometimes we do look at businesses on a trading basis. But that's that's difficult because you're you're beginning to build the value of the trading business on top of the bricks and mortar. And therein lies quite a bit of risk if the trading business doesn't exist. It's a bit like um, taking um, security over a Woolworths tenanted shop. It all sounds great until the day Woolworths goes bust. (laughs) Then all you've got is your vacant possession value for your bricks and mortar. The valuation before that would have usually, from what I I can see from what's happened in the end with Woolworths, um, the valuation beforehand was much higher because people valued the rental income stream from that big tenant. Mm-hmm. It turned out that couldn't be relied upon. And um, that wasn't apparent, perhaps, when you did your loan five years ago. So so that, that type, commercial valuations, be very careful about. Be very careful where it's valuing the lease rental income well above the 180-day type vacant possession valuation. Uh, Vacant possession, sorry, um, valuations as a whole should be an indication of the security. The secondary layer is who is the team who is instructing the valuation and deciding what level of that it can rely upon and then would deal with any recoveries afterwards. So it's a combination of the valuation quality and the team who's going to manage that valuation and the outcome of any recovery. Mm-hmm. Combination of the two mm-hmm. that's important. And just throwing a property that defaults into some kind of process is one of the quickest ways of losing value. And I have seen quite a number of occasions in the marketplace where people are doing that to with their first defaults in order to appease investors. But I don't think it's going to work out very well on a recovery percentage. So it's a short term appeasement, in my view. You just have to stick to your guns, do the right thing, do it properly and get the best recovery. And I think that produces the best investor outcome. A lot of lenders, especially ones that are sort of new into the peer to peer business, I don't think they realize just how long the recovery process can take, especially when there's property involved and it gets very complex. It is. I mean, people think, well, it's just a property, sell it. But I think a relatively fast recovery for us would typically be about six months. Mm-hmm. We've, had a, we've had a couple that take um, take a couple of years or so if you get very difficult situations or very difficult borrowers. But the thing is, just keep going. Keep keep plugging away, and people should just be relative, relatively well diversified in order to make sure that they're not, um, they're not uh, too exposed to those loans in the short term whilst they're being recovered. Okay. But it's part and parcel of the business. It's what peer-to-peer lending is all about. Um, you know, if you, if you avoid putting all your money in one loan, um, you know, the comparable of that is put all your money into one share on the stock market. Mm-hmm. If you do that, it can happen. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and the company's gone bust overnight. Mm-hmm. It does happen. You know, if you do a show of hands with 100 people in the room, it's quite surprising how many times you find people who've encountered that. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe Surprising. And the same would happen in peer-to-peer lending occasionally if you don't diversify widely. But if you do, 
you'll find it quite hard to find somebody who was following a sensible investment strategy and has actually lost money. Um, Stuart, give me a, a quick view on your opinion of the general health of the peer-to-peer industry now. Yeah, um, it looks it looks pretty strong to me. The the, the you know the, the industry has gone through the process of pre-regulation. It's gone through the process of being interim permissioned. It's um, pretty much all platforms now have gone through that process and come out the other side, a handful of exceptions accepted. And now that they're fully regulated, they're just continuing to build their businesses. I think there's the concern that you can see in the banking sector from the potential risks of Brexit impacting on bank lending. But um, the alternative finance industry seems to be taking up the slack and in, from a secure perspective, that doesn't seem to be much of an issue. We have seen warnings from the Bank of England about consumer lending and from pretty much every party that can uh, that can open its mouth, really warning about the more aggressive end of um, consumer lending. Frankly, lending to consumers at 3% doesn't seem well risk adjusted to me, and I think that's got to come back. And equally, lending into subprime, perhaps this isn't the right time to be doing it either. So I think um, both consumer and business lending both have some challenges ahead. But with good scale and the businesses with big, experienced teams, I'm very confident about the ability to uh, weather any storms and handle what comes up after all. What have we really done? We as a business, we we don't do automated lending. So the peer-to-peer moniker for us refers to our raising of investor funds. The, the lender side, the lending outside to borrowers is just basically a very high spec team of banking and credit professionals. We're just doing what any best practice business in that marketplace would do, um, but without any baggage to distract us and confuse us from years or decades gone by. Uh, we're focused on our, on our own clean loan book and that's what we're doing. So the peer-to-peer side applies to the investor side, and um, I think that what we've seen is is uh, that that's matured, that's strong. But our lending side, lending out money with the team we have in place today, is is a safe pair of hands, and it's it's doing a great job. The other platforms are doing similar, and so I think yeah, the largest guys who've hit critical mass are in a very good place, and hence the marketplaces. Stuart, there's some listeners and readers of the website who don't have a single pound invested into peer-to-peer who are sort of looking to dip their toes into the waters. Give me two or three quick tips to somebody that's never lent any money to peer-to-peer before. Um, I think I think in order to avoid any surprises, because surprises could then put you off something if they happen in the early days before you've had a proper experience, Stick to the larger platforms, make sure they're third-party verified, and that's not just the Altfi data team that verify our data, but there are one or two other sites that third-party verify. Look for consistency. Look for full FCA regulation, and um, without naming names, make sure that they're on the FCA register at the same time, Mm -hmm. not just on the website. 
That was one of the problems people had recently. Um, but that's the same with any industry. So FCA fully regulated, long track record, third party verified data, plenty of good reports such as on Trustpilot. Um, somebody you can speak to on the phone that talks sense, not just a website. Somebody with scale, somebody with profits, somebody well funded, somebody with lots of news around them that, uh, that talks about that business doing well and uh, just dip your toe in just put a small amount in that's its capital minimum is a pound we'd lose money if you put a pound in but uh, we don't stop you <laughs> because we don't expect you to stop there um people aren't going to mess about setting an account up to only invest a pound with our sort of eight percent net return uh, currently uh, produced over the last few years so experiment try two or three of those platforms that fit those bigger criteria, give it a go and see how you encounter it, see how it works. And I think I think our, our position is that this is a, a third way of doing things. We've got the cash type investments, safe, but little return, unlikely to change, even with the bank base rate changes coming up over the next year or so. Um, and not as a roller coaster as a stock market different. We've had a great run on the stock market and I think last time I was on mm -hmm. I commented on it and uh, people did do one or two comments back <laughs> disagreeing with that one part of my talk but you know, I think I think we've probably reached that peak now and we're beginning to decline so I don't think returns over the next few years will be that uh, that bright in the stock market. Perhaps they will, perhaps they won't but um, returns on peer-to-peer -peer, the big players are all intending the same thing positive returns long term. So I would suggest stick to uh, stick to the marketplace, diversify on two or three platforms, but also make sure you diversify well when you're investing. And frankly, if you put a pound in or 10 pound or 100 pound, mm -hmm. you're probably better putting it into some kind of automated, highly right. diversified account, because that will give you a better experience for a lot of money. If you're putting 100,000 on, as some people do, then fair enough, pick your own loans. But if you're going to put uh, a small test amount on, test the automated accounts first. Good advice, Stuart. And and just to let you know, I'm still trying to build that that crystal ball, which will tell us the future of the stock market. And um, <laughs> it's it's a slow process. But a couple of other questions for you. Last time we spoke, we talked about a couple of the challenges that assets was facing. Um, I think that one of them was the delicate balance between having enough money from the lenders and you know having enough borrowers. Uh, today, you know, what what are some of the, if any, of the challenges that you're still facing as a business now? Um, I know you talked about scaling. Now, what what are some of the challenges still that assets faces today? Well, as of as of today, we've moved premises. We've got plenty of space for growth. We're attracting some of the best people in the industry at all levels, whether it's risk, credit, uh, borrow face-to-face -face work, you name it, we're attracting really good people. So I'd still say that the biggest challenge is probably hiring at the right rate. We're certainly trying to hire at um, a faster rate than we are because hiring good people is what drives our growth. We don't grow by changing our credit model. 
we grow by hiring more good people who can help face to face spread the word on alternative finance. So yeah, that's one challenge. Um, balancing lenders and borrowers in peer to peer is always going to be uh, part of a challenge because banks can literally print a loan out of thin air. Uh, that's what the banking license lets them do. Uh, we're not allowed to do that. So we always have to maintain that balance between lenders and borrowers. Too much cash and we get cash drag and people aren't returning money. Too little cash and we're not funding as many loans as we could have funded. So always going to be a challenge, I think, for a true peer-to-peer, -peer, unless you get some kind of very flexible, deep-pocketed uh, rich uncle who uh, will fund you. And I think given those rich uncles come and go through cycles, even that isn't an answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think the balance of lenders and borrowers is one of the biggest challenges for any peer-to-peer -peer lender. I mean, look at the impact on Zopa with its over-origination. It, uh, uh, sorry, over-origination of the lender side had to close its doors for about a year um, to new investors because the existing investors had so much faith in the business, they were funding everything that moved and they couldn't accept any new lenders. Otherwise, they'd have prejudiced the ability of existing to, uh, to invest. I think, yeah, we'd like to stay away from that place, but uh, equally, we don't want to, too much cash on the, on the platform. But I'd, I'd say that's one of the bigger bigger challenges. The wider, the wider challenge is the really big ones for the industry are making alternative finance more visible to businesses. Big challenge, the government's failed a couple of times trying to do that. We're working on whether we can um, solve that problem and uh, bring alternative finance as a whole more visibility to businesses for the benefit of the whole alternative finance industry, not just ourselves. That's one big challenge. And another big one is uh, making ISAs measurable in the scheme of things. We've not had the stats quite yet for the ISA season uh, for this last year, but um, whether it's 50 billion or 80 billion this year, frankly, peer-to-peer -peer will be a very small fraction of that still. And I think that's one of the big challenges for the industry. How do we get the innovative finance ISA really up there? in being recognized as an alternative to those other isotypes. So yeah, I'd say most of our challenges are more industry type challenges, mm -hmm. shared. We've gone through that critical mass. And uh, so I think it's more industry challenges now that we face. Right. Okay. And last question for you, Stuart. Is there anything you'd like to share about you know, assets as plans moving forward, any future innovations? I know you'd mentioned possible changes to the manual lending account which sound very exciting is there anything else you want to tell people about which your plans are you might be excited about uh yeah i think uh, well we've tried to uh try to be quite open through this and i think those improvements to the manual lending accounts as i said to make that much slicker and easier to invest through those through this account is important because if, if it takes time to invest manually we're we're creating a need to earn more money and uh, a loss, if you like, for people's time spent doing that. So if we can simplify that, it will improve investors' return by reducing how much time they need to put in. Um, we're going to improve, if we can, the access accounts as well. Uh, we are looking at some other innovations, but it's too early to announce them, I'm afraid. But I think you could describe it as plugging assets capital into the wider financial services infrastructure. So at the moment, we're a peer-to-peer -peer lender. 
But in the bigger scope of things, I think what you'll see over the next year is more connections into that, uh, the rest of the industry, the rest of the financial industry, whether that's connections into banks, as has already been talked about, connections into marketplaces that we've already announced. Uh, for example, we're on the Bud marketplace. Um, those sorts of things, but also other innovations. We're seeing a lot of innovation from some players. Revolut, I think, is probably at the most uh, extreme end of innovation at one end of the spectrum, and uh, one or two high street banks are at the other end, currently still doing pretty much nothing in innovation. And on that spectrum, I think you can expect to see us at least right of centre. So fairly innovative, but not to the point where the wheels are falling off or we're pushing new ground to a dangerous level. I think what you'll see is us making innovations that are sensible, well-considered, and quite exciting when they come, but not to the point where people are asking uh, whether we've gone mad <laughs> or we're ahead of our permissions. There's no intention to do that. Okay, great. So continue to watch this space. And um, if you haven't checked out Assets Capital, I have a review on the website, financialthing.com. It is a company that I personally invest my own money through and have been doing for a number of years. Uh, take a look at their products. I think you know they're one of the stronger players in the peer-to-peer -peer lending industry. And uh, a lot of exciting future innovations, it sounds like, that are coming and we'll continue to watch their growth, Stuart. I wanted to thank you very much for your time taking to do this and for letting everybody know what you're up to. It's very helpful for them to see the face behind the company provides a little bit of trust and, and a lot of insight that, you know, a lot of the times we don't get from, from peer to peer company. So thank you very yeah. much for doing that. Sorry. I'm, uh, I'm the only face, uh, honest, there are getting on for a hundred other people in this building or scattered around the country. But, uh, yeah, we're like a stick of rock. If you cut through us, we're all the same. We'll, we all think the same way. Well, well thank you again, and uh, we'll continue to watch what's going on at Assets Capital. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Financial Thing Peer-to-Peer -peer Lending Essentials Podcast. Don't forget to visit financialthing.com for all the latest peer-to-peer -peer lending reviews and DIY investing articles. Could be, could be.